Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. This morning I want to do something different. When I talked to Pastor Henry some months ago, we were in Florida at a major conference, and he asked me to do something that would be different to a normal Sunday morning message. Now, I, I love preaching the Scriptures, doing an exegesis of the Bible text. But because of my work as global ambassador for this large world community, uh, traveling to about 25, 30 countries a year, he asked me to give an overview of the issues that we face within the church worldwide. And so what I'd like to do this morning is two essential things. We're going to go at 33,000 feet, or for some of you newer ones, 10,000 meters. And we're going to do a quick global view, not of the issues that we face, but that which is driving the church internally. What are the factors that are making the church work today? That's the macro. The micro is, what does that mean for you and me? I'm going to end with a story of one of my experiences in this new role. It's somewhat dramatic and a little out of the ordinary, but I use it not for that purpose, but because it has an essential learning element that was so instructive for me. And I want to ask you the question as we come to the end, out of all these macro elements, these megatrends that are driving the church, what is the Spirit saying to you this morning here in Calgary. We'll come back to that. But I want to go to Acts, the first chapter. Luke was a historian, and he had a benefactor, Theophilus. He wrote two books of the New Testament. The first was the, uh, the Gospel according to St. Luke. That's one of the four portraits of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are portraits. Each are different from a different perspective, and Luke brings his perspective of Jesus. But he also wrote a second book, the only one we have, of the history of the early church when it began. And because we are part of that inheritance of that two, those 2,000 years, I'd like to go back to the very opening verses and lines that he writes about the development of the church to his benefactor, Theophilus. Acts 1.1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote, which, which is, which is Luke, what we know as Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you going to return? at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the dates, the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. 
But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go. And that's how it began. And today we are the inheritors. Oh, many forms. I spend a fair bit of time with the Orthodox in the Middle East, Northern Africa. And the Orthodox and the Catholic, they get much of their liturgy and their forms and ceremonies out of the Old Testament theology, and they have made it into a New Testament form. Those of us within our church community, we have a different kind of liturgy, a much more casual approach, and a more spontaneous usage of contemporary music. But all of us are the inheritors of this moment. Why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who has gone into heaven will come in like manner. And so we, are, we have been living in the last days for 2,000 years. We're living closer in the last, last days, but we've all been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Today, 2015, there's a whole number of factors that play into who we are and what we do. I get concerns. I, in this new book that we've just done, I'm doing about 10 or 15 radio shows a day, a, a week rather, and they're mostly in the U.S. And people are saying, oh, it's so terrible here because we're being persecuted or whatever. We must be living in the last days. And I said, well, if you were in China in 1949, you would think you were living in the last days too. The issues are changing, but the essential elements are the same depending on where you are and at what time. But within the church, let me suggest five megatrends that are critical for our world and our understanding today. So we're at 33,000 feet. We're moving fairly quickly. Let me identify what those five are. The first is, this is the age of faith. Now, if you've been following CBC or CTV or Global or whatever your news source is, or the U.S. Net networks, you would say, Brian, I think you're out of step. This is not an age of faith. This increasingly is an age of unfaith. The faith is not rising. It is diminishing. There are two things I say to that. First of all, the stats, in my view, are a bit skewed in terms of interpretation. Secondly, I'm 73. I've been preaching since I was 18. Uh, someone calculated that I've preached in more churches in Canada than any other Canadian. I have no idea, but I've been right across this country, back and forth, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches for those 40-some years. I have never in my life seen spiritual activity and interest in prayer, in Bible study, in witness, in special social programs, 
in various kinds of expression of the gospel as I'm seeing today. Never in my life have I seen it. Secondly, globally is where we are at. Globally, there is a movement of God. Numbers are expanding. In the last 50 years, the evangelical community has grown faster than any religious community in the history of the world in the last 50 years. We now talk about the global south. The global south means Africa, Latin America, and Asia. The numbers are exploding. China, the government says 28 million. Those on the ground say anywhere from 110 to 140 million. There is a movement of the Spirit. Now there seems to be a repression in China, but often that is a way of, of driving even more intensely the faith and the witness of people of faith. Globally, the gospel is growing at a rapid pace. I was in Nepal just a few weeks ago. In 1970, there was 100 known Christians. 1970. Today, there's 1.4 million. I asked a professor, why the growth? He said a number of factors, but two to note. One is the power of healing. I said, how so? He said, when you're living back in the mountains and your son and daughter is dying of a disease and you have no medical help and you know that there's a little church nearby who believes in healing and you call in them and the elders and they lay on hands and the child is healed, he said, it's amazing what it does for the witness of the gospel in that village. He said, secondly, we live in a country where millions of gods are worshipped. And in that Hindu world, he said, there seems to be a presence of darkness, the demonic, that inflicts itself on people. And for some people, that infliction creates such, kind, such disorientation that when, a person, that when a church comes along, when a Christian comes along and prays the prayer of deliverance, and that person is fear, freed from that presence of darkness and are transformed, it has such multiple effect that people see the power of the gospel and they come to Christ. So you find in country after country, the growth of the gospel, the rise of faith is remarkable, it is without precedence, and it is moving across many parts of the world. I was in Egypt and uh, Lebanon, and in Iraq, just, I was in Iraq just last week, a uh, week before last, and it's interesting, the movement of the Spirit among Muslim people. After 31 Christian Egyptians were beheaded by ISIS in Libya back in about uh, March or April. And when the mothers of those beheaded young men went on the television and forgave those who beheaded their sons, it created a, a, a kind of a spiritual tsunami across that part of the world. A few things happened. As reported to me by, by Christian leaders right across North Africa and the Middle East, here's what happened. Muslim young people said, if ISIS is the natural conclusion of our faith, we, want to, we don't want to have anything, apart, anything to do with it. They became agnostic, Muslim agnostics. But what secondly it did, when they saw the forgiveness, they said, we've never seen this before. Forgiveness is not part of our faith. Where does this forgiveness come from? Christians, you aren't our enemies. You aren't someone we should fear. What do you have to show us? Pastors were saying people were coming into their churches, even dressing in the hajib, the, 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 the Muslim dress, open about wanting to inquire about faith. 
But there's a second part of this that is remarkable. It is, I have never seen of this in, in, in church history before, except if you go back to Acts 10, you can read this, and it's this. Everywhere I go in the Muslim world, in fact, even in, even in Canada, those that have, have, who are Muslims who have become Christians or people who work in Muslim communities, there is a, there is a movement of the Spirit to bring witness of Christ through, through, through dreams, spiritual encounters, heavenly visitors. It comes in a variety of ways. A dream, a, a heavenly encounter, someone who meets them and tells them where to go, specifically who to find, and that person will lead them to the one who is true. And that is going across the world in, in, a, in a wave that is, is unprecedented. And the repercussions of this, we are just beginning to see. The faith of, in Christ, even if we feel that here in this secular world, there is a diminishing of faith. Globally, folks, you need to understand that the rise of the gospel is unprecedented and sweeping many of our continents and countries, and for that I give great praise to God. The second is, if this is an age of faith, it's an age of the Spirit. Now, for 2,000 years, or for 1,900 years, the church wasn't very good at understanding the Spirit. Oh, we understand Father because we all have or had fathers. And so we understand God the Father. It's a, it's, a, it's a fairly natural link. We understand Jesus because he was a person. He came, he was incarnate, he lived flesh and blood. And as John says, he dwelt among us. Plus we have pictures of Jesus. It's a little humor, folks. Come on. <laughs> Very little humor. But the Spirit, well, that's kind of spooky. And the church has never really been good at developing a theology, an understanding of the Holy Spirit of God who is a member of the Trinity. He is divine. There's been a few times through church history, the early church fathers, through some of the Protestant movements, there would be kind of a, 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 a bursting forth of, of interest in the Spirit. But to really do a theology, to do pneumatology, the study of the Spirit, simply wasn't part of the, uh, the kind of the spiritual theological artifacts of our, of, of our Christian community, Catholic and Protestant. But in the early 20th century, a Pente the Pentecostal movement broke out. The Pentecostal movement was an eruption that was globally. It went worldwide. But it created an enormous division, especially within the evangelical community. You have two divisions. One side, you have what's called the cessationists. Now, a cessationist simply was, were people, it was a theology that said the gifts of the Spirit ceased in the fourth century when the Bible was finally agreed on, the, the, the contents of the Bible was agreed on, called the canon. And they said at that point, the gifts of the Spirit were no longer needed. And that was a very strong doctrine within many of the evangelical churches. On the other side, Pentecostals in this new movement, they not only emphasized the work and person of the Spirit, which was of enormous benefit to us all, but they said 
if to be filled with the Spirit, they attached with it a phenomenon called speaking in tongues or glossolalia. And they said to be filled with the Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, you haven't been filled with the Spirit. Well, that only increased the chasm between Pentecostals and the wider evangelical community. It created a hostility, as a matter of fact. And some of, some of you, you old codgers like me, you'll remember some of those days of very, very intense debate. But the 1960s, something happened. There was an Episcopalian priest, Father Bennett in Seattle. And there's a Catholic community in Michigan. And there was an eruption of the Spirit in the Episcopalian and the Catholic communities that it was eventually called the Charismatic Movement. It swept across much of the Lutheran Church, the Anglican, parts of the Anglican, and Catholic communities. I was living in Quebec at the time, and there was an enormous movement within that community. What it did, it came along and said two things. First of all, cessationism is wrong. The gifts of the Spirit continue. He is the Spirit. And what the Spirit gave back in the second century, He gives in the 20th century. First. Secondly, while the gifts of the Spirit, including glossolalia, are part of what God offers to the church, you don't have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit. The two are not continuous necessarily. And when the charismatic movement brought this new understanding, doors opened and the Spirit rushed in. And so today, we have this enormous movement that has transformed the church. Now to find charismatic, Pentecostal, it's hard to find non-charismatic churches, frankly. Those are the kind of the odd, odd not oddballs, but odd, I was going to say odd man, but I'm being sexist, aren't I? Odd person out. Because the Spirit is the agency as God that makes known Jesus to us. He opens our eyes to Jesus. He empowers us to witness. He gives us internal life. You see, it's the Spirit who converts us. When we come to Christ and are converted, we're saved, we're born again, whatever phrase you use, what happens, the Spirit comes and He lives in us. Paul said, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So you, as a person, your body, your mind, your personality, all that's who you is, <laughs> all that you know who you are, and all that others say you are, that is a temple of the Spirit. And so the role of the Spirit has been powerful in doing the first trend, which is the rise of faith. Because as we realize who the Holy Spirit is, we aren't afraid of Him. We can pray to Him. We can allow Him to exercise His power in our lives. What that does, it puts us on fire for the Lord to witness to others. And so when we know that the Spirit is in us and we can open ourselves and not be afraid of Him, then we have empowerment to give witness to Christ and to use His gifts as part of that witness. But secondly, what it does, it helps us understand that we have been called by Him, each one of us. Sir, I don't know what your vocation is, but your vocation matters as much to the Spirit as mine does. Because He is in you, and wherever you go, He goes. 
And wherever you go, because he goes, that too is kingdom concern. I'm not there, you're there. You're the kingdom person there, I'm not. I have my role to fill, but you have yours, and so there is no distinction. There may be different assignments, but there's no distinction in the kingdom. And when you realize that, when you know that you, are imbo- you embody him, and wherever you go, the domain of the king also wants to rule, it gives you a new understanding of your calling. So this understanding of the spirit is so essential. Uh, a few months ago, I had, a, I had three hours, three of us from the World Evangelical Alliance, we had three hours with, with uh, Pope Francis. We had a full hour of just discussion. And uh, he told us, uh, he told us first, he hadn't announced that he's going down in a few months, and a few weeks, to a Pentecostal church in southern Italy to apologize to the, to the evangelicals for how the Catholic Church in Italy had treated them, which was, when, when it went public, it really created quite a stir. And then we had a two-hour lunch in the cafeteria, very open, just a few of us talking about issues. Uh, he had a great line. He said, Brian, in evangelism, he said, just understand that I'm not trying to convert you evangelicals to, to, the, to be a Catholic. You're fine the way you are, which was an interesting conversation. But, it was, but what we could do, we, we could talk about Jesus and the Spirit because out of Argentina and the charismatic movement, he understands the importance of the Spirit. There are things that we, did, we fundamentally disagree on, but we do understand that Jesus is Lord, the Spirit is God, and he is the enabler of the church in bringing witness and power of Christ to all of the world. And for that, we give God praise. It's an age of faith. It's an age of the Spirit. It's the age of indigenous leadership. Now, this, this wonderful phrase that you have going, living in God's story, the global church, I love. Because, you see, we are living today in God's story. And the macro, which I'm giving to you now, you, while I'm talking, the Spirit keeps dropping down into your life and saying, okay, what's your narrative? What's your story? Where do you fit in this, in this wide, in this plot of, this, of the Spirit to make lie of the church and Christ into the world? Age of faith, age of the Spirit, age of indigenous leadership. I was born very young in the province of Saskatchewan. My father was a pastor, and I loved missionary conferences. Man, missionary conferences were just my favorites. Those missionaries, they would come and they would have come from various parts of the world and they would have artifacts of where they came from and they had movies. I mean, it was, they were taking movies. Now, back then in Saskatoon, we couldn't go to the movie house because we were sure Jesus would come in the middle of a movie. <laughs> so we could never go to movies. But man, we had movies at church. It's like a story I like, I'd like to tell. You know, when we were kids, we couldn't go to dances. But we had hayrides. <laughs> hey, God is good, right? <laughs> but they were all whites. The missionaries, they were all whites. And then something happened. Oh, in some places, there was, there was, there was cultural revolution to throw the, throw the, uh, the foreigners out the colonializers, colonializers out. But what most cases, missionaries were smart enough to realize 
that the way the church would grow would be to train nationals and give them the authority, give them the ownership of the church in their country. And indigenous leadership, ladies and gentlemen, has transformed everything. So today, missionaries, when we go, we're enablers. We go to help. We don't go to rule. We don't go to lead. We go to help. And if, we don't under, if, missions don't under, if a missionary doesn't understand that, they don't understand missions, and they don't understand the contemporary work of the Spirit in raising up indigenous leadership. Because wherever I go, in Zimbabwe a few days ago, everybody's, leader, everybody's national. Go to Nepal, meet with the leadership, everybody's Nepalese. Wherever you go, where the church is growing, I was in Thailand. I said, wherever I went, I asked this very, very difficult question. It was embarrassing to some, but I was determined I was going to force the issue. I said, why is it here since the 1870s, thousands of missionaries have come to Thailand? Why is it that hundreds of millions of dollars have been poured into Thailand and we have very little to show for it? Why is it? And finally, a national leader said, Brian, two reasons. First of all, you didn't trust us to be leaders here nationally. And secondly, we all thought the gospel was free. We didn't realize that giving was an essential part of the gospel. And it, the, the, the culture of generosity was never developed. He said that now is changing. I sat with 200 Chinese pastors in, North, in, in South Korea. They had been, they had, their, their exit visas had been denied by the Chinese government in, in October 2010 to go to a world conference in South Africa. And so we did another conference for them a couple of years later. And I'm sitting with them in, in, uh, in Korea. And we're having lunch, and I'm, a, I'm with about six or seven pastors. And one of them asked me a question. The WEA, the World Evangelical Alliance, are you go, how many pa uh, Chinese pastors are you going, you going to invite to this special conference? And I said to them, well, I'm not sure how much money we can raise to help pay your, your costs. And one pastor looked across the table, and he laughed at me. And I said, why are you laughing at me? He said, we don't need your money. He said, back in 210, when we couldn't go, we raised a million dollars to help people from other countries that couldn't go. What did it? You see, Mao, in 49, when he defeated the, the, the Kuomintang Party, and, and the three self was put into effect. Three self means every, every religion has to be self-led, self-propagated, and self-funded. What that did, it gave inspiration and catalyst to the raising up of national Chinese leadership. And today, this fastest growing church is because the indigenous leadership principle is at work. And you know, Mao didn't know he was being used by the Spirit. Age of faith, an age of the spirit, age of indigenous leadership. And it's an age of re-engagement in the public square. Public square, this is what we mean by public square. I was raised in Tisdale, Saskatchewan, and downtown there was kind of a square in the middle of the town. And you've got a government building, you've got a hospital, you've got a school, you've got a business. So that's the, the public square is the civic apparatus of society that helps us to organize, to educate, 
to give medic, med, medicine, to give those kinds of facilities and services to our whole community. And that's generally a governmental activity. But in the early part of the 20th century, when the Protestant world split, as I said earlier, between the liberal and the conservative, here's the mistake we made, the conservative Protestants. We said, we'll let you guys run society. And we know that you'll do it on the basis of a Christian view of life. What we will do, we'll do the real work of the church. We'll get people saved, living holy lives and ready for eternity. Okay? What was the assumption? The assumption was that public management of a nation didn't matter to God. God had other priorities. Well, something has happened in between. Jesus hasn't returned. Right? Right. Thank you. Hello? <laughs> the second thing that happened is that the government governance issues on many, many issues, and I could just go right down the list, have not found their way out of a biblical vision of nation. We finally woke up probably too late, in the 70s, early 80s. And we realized this, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. All of life matters to God. As Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch prime minister in the early part of the 20th century said, there's not one square inch of creation that God doesn't say, that's mine. So, sir, your job, where you go, that becomes the domain of the king. He's concerned about that. God is concerned about government, about education, about, med about those things that affect the well-being of people. God's concern, he does not simply say, I came to get you saved to go to eternity. He said, I came to be king of all of life. And is there any place in this world that Christ doesn't claim kingship if he's not king of all? He's not king at all. And now there's a re-engagement worldwide, and this is going on. I saw it happening when I came in with the Evangelical Fellowship in 83. There was a new election, and I saw on the national political scene a whole re-engagement of people at the political level who believe that their presence mattered. You see, Jesus used a couple of metaphors. And the, thing, the metaphors, they are so illustrative of the nature of the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom. And that's salt and light. What do they do? Well, salt, it preserves, at least in the old days, they, they use it for preservative, but it gives, gives flavor. Oh, I, I love Campari tomatoes. Campari tomatoes are the best in the world. They're Italian, but they're made in Ontario now. Sorry. I'm still from Saskatchewan, you know, let me get out of here alive. <laughs> and I've got to have a little salt on those. Because salt just... But you put too much on, and I say, Lily, let me put it on myself the next time. <laughs> Why? What is good destroys when it's too much. And light 
oh, a light illumines. But sometimes when I'm driving down the highway and someone refuses to dim their lights, I, I know they're an evangelical. <laughs> Illumine, don't blind. The gospel is salt and light. And the pervasive element isn't to take over because the ways of Christ are servanthood. They aren't dominance. And the ways of Christ are by your life and mine working its way into the life and the fabric of culture. There's a re-engagement. It's an age of faith, age of the Spirit, age of leadership, indigenous leadership, age of re-engagement in the public square. And fourth is an age of justice. Now, I'm not going to get many amens on this one, but stay with me, will you? I go back 100 years, and I gain this liberal conservative division. This stuff takes a long time to work its way out. And what the social liberal left did was take up the cause of social justice. We took up the cause of personal conversion. What they said, the problem in the world isn't so much the individual, it's the social categories. Now remember, I'm a Saskatchewan boy during the days of Tommy Douglas. And he came along as his Baptist minister and said, it isn't so much the salvation of the individual that matters, it's the salvation of those social categories. So let's bring in social policy that will improve the lives of people because it isn't that they are sinful, it's that the social compartments are sinful and need changing and saving. We went the opposite direction. Our mistake was both are right. Because you and I know that bad social policy is damaging to people. That's why we want good social policy. Ethical social policy. When we look at corruption in the world, one of the major reasons the poor are poor is because of corruption. Because corruption ultimately is carried on the backs of the poor. And good social policy is a way of improving people by bringing good framework of social life to people. And so their emphasis on the social gospel or social justice, we kind of held our nose and said, okay, you can do this and we'll get people saved. It wasn't that evangelicals didn't have a social conscience. The fact is that, for example, World Vision, the largest humanitarian organization in the world today, started out of Youth for Christ in the late 40s. And it was evangelicals that have funded those things. World Compassion, I was with, I was with, uh, with the Samaritan's Purse in Nepal. Wonderful ministry they do. Funded by evangelicals. So it isn't that we don't have a social conscience. But here was our mistake. We were willing to deal with the fruit of injustice, injustices, helping people in need, on, on, a, on a percentage basis, evangelicals give more money and give more time to social causes than any other social grouping because our hearts are touched. But what we fail to realize is that the bloom of injustice has a systemic root of injustice. It's one thing to deal with the fruit of injustice. It's something else to go and deal with the systemic roots of injustice. So when I sat in Hanoi last year with the head of the secret police 
and I brought before him the UN ruling or, or the UN declaration on, 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 on Vietnam. I said, as evangelicals, what we're concerned is some of the, so, is some of the legal policies that you've put in place that are discriminatory and bring about persecution and even death to Christians. It isn't just dealing with those that are being persecuted, but it's dealing with the causes that bring about persecution. And today, there is even worldwide, it's, it's, it's a phenomenon that just startles me wherever I go because it's seemingly so out of, so inconsistent with the evangelical theme of the last hundred years. And it's this, our young people are gravitating towards dealing with systemic injustice in ways that I never thought would happen, but we've understood this. Young people are, have found this. When the Bible says God loves injustice, they understand we should too. And so our witness today, it's staying very much with bringing people to personal faith, being infilled and empowered by the Spirit, raising up leadership, re-engaging in the public square, but also looking into the lives of people that, whose lives are being torn apart by injustice. And you and I read enough of the newspaper and watch television to know where that's going on and what it looks like. And as I go to these many countries and I sit in these tents in refugee camps on the, on the Syrian border in Jordan and in Lebanon, and I look into the faces of mothers who have lost their children or husbands through death, sitting in Nigeria with those who have lost their daughters, you realize the kind of injustice that's going on, and God's heart is there beating, bringing, calling us not to get caught in our own kind of conservative world where we simply let others you see, the liberal left stole the issue of justice, and it, we, we let them steal it from us. And the fact is that it's God's concern, and if it's his concern, it should be ours. Amen. And what the Spirit is doing is raising up a new generation who are sensitized to this. So there's five macros. Where do you and I fit in? Four years ago when I was starting this work, I just started in 1st of July, and within days, I became aware of this rising massive famine in the Horn of Africa. The Horn of Africa, you know, the Africa goes up on the East Coast, and then and there's a horn that juts out Somalia, and you've got Kenya, Kenya here and Ethiopia there. And as I was watching this, I just I kind of felt stirred in my heart, and I said to my wife, you know, honey, I, maybe I should go there. And she said, what would you do? And I said, I don't know. Well, she said, what would you accomplish? And I said, I have no idea. Well, she said, maybe you should think about it some more. <laughs> oh, the irrationality of logic, eh? And it just kept growing. It kept growing. So finally, I called Dave Toyson, president of World Vision. He had been part of the journey of me deciding to accept this role as global ambassador, so he knew what it, was, what it could be about. And I said, David, here's what I'm feeling. What should I do? He said, Brian, you should go. It's an awful famine to represent these 600 million on the ground, to encourage our workers to meet with government and media. It would be very, very important. And furthermore, we'll look after you and get you to the ref various refugee camps when you get there. I arrived in Nairobi, and all the plans fell through. So there I am, stuck in Nairobi, 
no way to get to the refugee camps, no way to be any help, sitting with our director of the Evangelical Alliance of Africa, Ea, and I said, Ea, what do we do? He said, I don't know. Well, I said, I just noticed in the paper that Al-Shabaab, which is the Al-Qaeda group in Somalia, Somalia, the most lawless land in the world, that Al-Shabaab yesterday was driven out of, of Mogadishu, the, the capital of, of Somalia, by the African Union Army. I said, maybe, has anybody been to Mogadishu? He said, you can't go there, it's too dangerous. And then, no, I didn't ask that. I said, has anybody been there? He said, you can't go there, it's too dangerous. I said, yes, but if Al-Shabaab's out of there, maybe World Vision six months earlier had been, who had been feeding half a million children was forced out by this Al-Qaeda group, Al-Shabaab. I said, let's see if we can go there. So he asked his travel agent, there was no flight. So I got a computer and I, I found a little African airline that was going to Dubai the next day. They were dropping off some equipment in Mogadishu and they had two seats. So I bought the two seats. I said, Aya, we're going. Have you ever seen an African blanche? He blanched. <laughs> so we went to the, we went to the Somalian em, uh, embassy and, we, and Mohammed, he had no idea why we wanted to go. And I because how do you tell a guy this? How do you tell Mohammed that the spirit is leading you? So I said, well, we're going to do some reconnaissance and see if we can get... So anyhow, we finally got our visa. We arrived in Mogadishu the next day. We dropped into this airport. And I got to tell you, uh, when, you're, when you're a Caucasian and you're in an African airport and there's one other white guy, it's amazing how you connect. <laughs> and he... So I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a photojournalist from France. I go to places and do, do my thing. He said, what are you doing here? So I gave him this reconnaissance stuff, you know, and he didn't understand and neither did I, but it was a way of... So finally he said, well, who's looking after you? And I said, oh, we haven't got that far yet. He looked at me and he used words that I wouldn't use here, but he ended up with, by saying, with the expletives being the adjectives, he said, you're an idiot. Don't leave this terminal. Well, but an hour later, the immigration officer said the same thing, I can't let you leave. Finally, he introduced me to a man whose name was Amir. I didn't know who he was, but as we walked out to the, to the curb of the terminal, there sitting was a truck with five soldiers in their fatigues with AK-47s, an aide-de-camp and a driver. He also had a hotel downtown protected. He was a warlord. He had 100, men, of a, 100 men in his army that surrounded this hotel. It was right next to the government buildings, and the government was being reconstructed by, by uh, Somalians who had come back from overseas from studying, trying to reconstruct the government. And so for the time we were there, we were in this kind of bubble going from refugee camp to refugee camp. It was an enormously moving moment. Uh, I, just one moment, I was in a refugee camp, and there was a, there was a woman and, uh, sitting there, and she was in, she was in grief. And right next to her, there was this rug that was rolled up. And I said, I said, oh, what, what's, what's the problem with her? And he said, oh, that's her son that just died. I said, oh. And they said, that's her second son today. Like, I'm a, I'm a papa. I'm a father. They feel no differently than I do. And my heart was just, 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 Tearing apart. Well, we were staying in this hotel. 
And these government officials were in Ramadan, so it's the end, so it's the, they can't eat till sundown. And, and many, many had come in uh, late afternoon waiting for sundown so they could eat. So we're sitting in this courtyard surrounded by soldiers. And the Amir, this warlord, he, he, introduced every, he introduced me to everybody. This is crazy Brian from Canada. <laughs> they all call you, they, they, I get called Dr. Brian wherever I go. So this is doctor, crazy Dr. Brian. So we're talking, everybody's talking, and someone said, an ambassador said, uh, ah, you Canadians, you're all cowards. And I said, what? And at that point, everybody stopped because they wondered what was going on here. I said, why would you say that? We said, all you Canadians, you come to Nairobi and Kenya, but no one comes to Mogadishu. Why are you here? And boy, everybody's listening now. I said, you know what Somalia is thought of in the world? You have your pirates seizing ships on the high sea. You cut off the hands of the robbers. You take your girls and you, you sexually cut them up so that they don't experience sexual, they don't experience pleasure in their sexual life as adults. You guys got a pretty bad reputation in the world. But I'm here as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I've got two words to say to you. God loves Somalia, and God loves Somalians. Now, in all my life, I've preached about the love of God. But never in that crowd, or never in a situation like that. And when I said those words, I was so profoundly struck by the words, I had nothing more to say. But there was like a breath of air, of wind that went through that courtyard. And you know, in a strange way, and we were all men there, we were brothers. And it changed the conversation and the relationship. And he had to make the story shorter. Eventually, we were going out through the airport and going through a, the uh, screening. And there was a young Somalian there who was doing the, using the wand, and I looked on his, and he was wearing an, a t-shirt with an English saying on it. And when I looked at what was on there, I thought, the kid can't, he must not read English because he would never dare wear that ear in, in, this, in this Islamic world that's radical, that's lawless. So I said, what's true? Because on the t-shirt was, this is true. I said, what's true? Because underneath was written John 3.16. I said, what's true? And in those, that brief time we had, he told me his testimony. And I thought, here in Somalia, this kid is just simply saying, hey, here's who I follow. So we walked out, getting ready to leave. And the immigration officer who had helped us before came running over to us. And I, I stood up to shake his hand. And he didn't want to have his hand shaken. He wanted to be hugged. And not once, but twice. Not twice, but three times. And I, he said, can I give you my name and phone number so when you come back, we will be ready for you. And I left, and I got home. Of course, my, biggest, my oldest brother said, what did you accomplish? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I have no idea. He said, well, maybe you were there to encourage that young guy. And Lily spoke up and said, well, maybe. But I think what it was all about was 
Brian learning to discern the nudge of the Spirit and responding to that to go out not knowing where he was going. Now, I've done this stuff all my life, folks, but that was a new moment of learning. And over the last four years, it has given me a new understanding of how to respond to the nudge of the Spirit. So, what's the nudge for you this morning? What's the nudge? For some of you, there's that kind of pitter-patter of the heart because you have been so conscious through this morning of what the Spirit is asking you to say, to do, to be, or to go. And He wants you to respond to that because, you see, discernment is like a muscle. You use it or you lose it. And the more you use and respond to the discerning spirit, the more you're able to read, to interpret, to understand the spirit that leads. He doesn't jam you in the ribs. He just nudges you. So, what's your nudge this morning? We're going to have a prayer. At the end, we're going to do something. Jesus had a wonderful, wonderful promise. He said that if any two of you will agree on earth, it'll be done in heaven. It's like when you sign a contract and you get someone to witness, it becomes legal tender. We have many here this morning, so I'm, I'm going to do it this way as a group. After the prayer, again, with no one looking, if you're at the point where you're saying, Brian, I know what that nudge of the Spirit is to me today, and I'm going to be obedient to that nudge wherever it leads... I'm going to ask you to let me sign this signature with you, to clasp your hand, to reach across and take hold of your hand and agree with you. And so after I've prayed, with no one looking, if you're at that point, you're saying, Brian, I know what the nudge is, and I'm going to be responsive today. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and look at me for a moment while I cast my eye across, and by so doing, it's like me reaching across and agreeing with you. Let's pray. Father... Thank you for the way in which you speak to us, for the way your, your witness of Christ, the living Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the specter of his love and power is being raised globally. Thank you for the many people, those in suffering and sorrow, yet are faithful to you. Thank you for where the, where the wave is like a tsunami, where the witness of Christ is in multiple ways. We praise you for that. But we come down to ourselves here today because we are also part of your story. The narrative of the gospel is not only being written in our hearts, but our story is being written in the larger acts of the apostles of the 21st century. So help us today to respond to your nudge. And if that's where you are today, you're saying, Brian, I want you to agree with me. Would you just look, raise your hand and look at me right now? Thank you. Just hold it up. Hold it up for a moment, would you? No one else looking. Just those of you that are raising your hands and looking at me. Just keep those hands raised. The Spirit of God has nudged you, and right now you and I are agreeing that you will be responsive to that nudge. And as you are, you will increasingly become competent in interpreting his nudge and being obedient to it. 
and Lord Jesus for my sisters and brothers that I'm looking at now. I agree with them and pray that in their courage and boldness and faithfulness, they will do as they are promising to do now. In the strong name of Jesus, we all pray and together we give thanks by saying, Amen. Thank you, my friends. Nice to be with you. Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you.